Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor Ongira. No will on the first part of today's pod. Hopefully, everyone enjoyed their Memorial Day weekend. Thank you to all the brave men and women who served for this country, who died for this country. Planned for today, we've got the talented Noah Eagle coming up in a little bit. Extremely talented, um, might I add. The young play-by-play announcer who I wanted to have on the show for a little bit here. And then we're going to close out with what you what you wanted to be when you were little in figuring out. But first, a vow to the first-year coaches. I have a little bit of a pet peeve. I don't know if I've ever shared this on these airwaves, but... I don't like it when you go to a wedding and people do vows that aren't vows. I love that you love your significant other, but you know, time and place. I want to hear what you're going to do for your significant other. But anyway, I'll I'll say that rant for another day. The vow that I have for the first year coaches is simple. I think it's going to be a really bad year for an all-time premature take session with the first year head coaches. My vow is to not contribute to that, good or bad. I don't wanna contribute to that either way. Premature takes for first year coaches. Why will that be the case? Just as I talked about with our whole, like why why is everyone so all over the place with trying to rank the number four team in the country going into the season thing that I did earlier, think about all these programs with first year coaches. USC, Oklahoma, LSU, Florida, Notre Dame, Miami, Oregon, All of those teams have played in national championships in the 21st century. And if we want to include Virginia Tech, who technically played in a national championship game on January 4th, 2000, but it was the 1999 season, that's eight programs who played in a national championship game in the 21st century who now have first-year head coaches. I'll spare you the the time of looking it up. That's a record, okay? uh, that's, That's pretty safe. It's not just that there are so many high-profile programs with new head coaches. It's that three of them left high-profile jobs as well. So there are going to be a fair amount of people who are rooting against Lincoln Riley, Brian Kelly, and Mario Cristobal because they want to be able to say, man, guess they shouldn't have left. You can see those takes coming. There's a lot of confirmation bias with first-year head coaches, and really there shouldn't be. If you want a coach to succeed, you're going to talk about them changing the culture and having things moving in the right direction. And look, I'm guilty of this. I absolutely am. Lord knows I said it a ton about Sam Pittman and Shane Beamer when they had their first seasons with their respective programs. The only real constant though with year one coaches is confirmation bias. If you have a coach that, that, that you liked coming in and they have a great first season, you're going to hammer home the point that they were the perfect hire. If a coach that you didn't like when the hire was made, if they have a bad first season, you're going to hammer home the point that they were the wrong hire. In reality, though, there is no way of knowing if a coach will be either good or bad based on year one. History shows us that year one is a bad barometer, and any overreaction either way is actually the worst possible take to have. Here's what I mean by this. Let's do some blind resumes with first-year head coaches. Coach A went 7-5 and five in his first year. He improved his team's win total by one game. He had four conference wins that first season, and his team finished unranked. Coach B went 10-4 and four in his first year. He improved his team's win total by three games. He had seven conference wins, and his team finished ranked number 25 in the country. Any guesses? Coach A was Nick Saban. Coach B was Jim McElwain. All right, let's do another one. Not fair probably to do a side-by-side of Nick Saban, and I know there's a lot of context that goes into this. I'll get to that that point in a bit. Coach A went 8-5 and five in his first year, 
was actually minus two in win improvement and had four conference wins, did not have a winning conference record, finished unranked. Coach B went 10 and three in his first year. He improved his team's win total by six games. He had five conference wins, finished number seven in the country. I think some people might have been able to pick up on that. Coach A, Kirby Smart. Coach B, Dan Mullen. Let's do one more and I promise Coach, Coach B is not gonna be a Florida coach. Coach A, 11-2 in his first year. He was plus four in win improvement from his predecessor. He won six conference games that first year. His team finished ranked number 12 in the country. Coach B was six and six in his first year. He had a plus one win improvement. He won five conference games and his team finished unranked. Coach A was Brady Hoke and Coach B was Pete Carroll at USC. So does that mean it's actually a bad sign if a coach is awesome year one and it's more of a positive to have a slow start like Saban or Kirby or Pete Carroll did? I wouldn't say that either. I mean, Dabo, Jimbo, Ryan Day, Lincoln Riley, they all improved their team's record in year one and actually turned out to be pretty good coaches as internal hires. And I even remember having having the take about, you know, you need to have all this experience coming in and that's kind of proven wrong as well. And you can go all over the place with some of those big time jobs and some of the people who have failed in those roles. And obviously those guys had a lot of success. Gus technically wasn't an internal hire because he spent that one year at Arkansas State before coming back to Auburn in 2013. But if you would have just looked at the year that he had, of course, taking a team that was skunked in SEC play, to a national championship appearance, you would have said, okay, this guy is the real deal. That's why he got an extension after year one, he got that new deal. Did Gus turn out to be this incredible coach? Eh, he fell short of that. I, I think beating Saban three times and winning a couple of SEC West titles doesn't make you a total failure You know, at the same time. He was kind of up and down. As I always like to say, these things are not linear. They're just not. I was thinking about this. Let's say Lincoln Riley sort of has that ideal year one at USC. I'd say that's like a top five finish and Caleb Williams wins the Heisman. Would that be a sign that he's about to bring USC back to prominence? No. Remember when Kevin Sumlin did that exact same thing in year one at Texas A&M? Didn't get the new deal at the end of year one like Gus did, but he rode that entire first season into the year two that he had, which was, of course, kind of disappointing. Manziel was banged up, whatever, the defense was terrible. But he got that new deal at AM just before the regular season finale of his second season at AM. I say this because I know we're going to do the thing at the end of this season where we look back and grade the hires from this pretty unprecedented coaching cycle with all these high profile jobs that came open. We do that because we want to have these things figured out. And what I'm saying is it's totally okay to just not know. <laughs> I mean, I've shifted my stance on being so definitive with hires because you know, Sam Pittman and Tom Herman have kind of taught us, you just never really know, even after those initial hires are made and it's home run hire or this is destined to fail. Speaking of Texas, by the way, did getting demolished by Arkansas and losing to Kansas show that there are cracks in Steve Sarkeesian's foundation as a coach? Not at all. His time at Texas won't be defined by those games. If he's great, we'll look back on that in the same way that we did with Saban losing to Louisiana Monroe or Kirby losing to Vandy at home. If he's bad and maybe he's out of a job after three years, this shouldn't turn into, well, you know, we should have known that he was going to be bad when he lost to Kansas and, you know, the, the hire was doomed to fail. That's just dumb. 
If he's still doing that stuff in year two and he looks like he's becoming Texas's version of Chad Morris, then we can kind of sound off the alarms. By the way, shout out to Chad Morris. Guy takes a high school job, gets to the state quarterfinals, and then bounces after one year because he's apparently getting back into the college game, though most of those jobs aren't suddenly open in the middle of May. So stay tuned to whatever job Chad Morris just couldn't pass up in the college ranks after 13 months back in high school. But anyway, take year one with a grain of salt. I know that with this year especially, that is going to be really, really difficult. You can close your eyes and picture all of the good things that will be written about Marcus Freeman if Notre Dame goes into Ohio State and wins that game in week one. Just, just picture it. Those takes will be endless. It'll be also, on top of that, Brian Kelly would just take ricochet shot after ricochet shot. That would definitely happen. I'll be the person in the background, though, being like, hey, remember when Charlie Weiss started off at Notre Dame by beating consecutive top 25 teams on the road, and then he turned out to be Charlie Weiss? Maybe we just, you know, we pump the brakes. We don't let confirmation bias take hold of our year one takes about these head coaches. That's just what we should do with, with all of these guys in year one. Pump the bricks. You're allowed to be optimistic or even pessimistic about, about some of these guys. It's okay to be encouraged by quality wins or, or, or maybe seeing develop development at quarterback that you didn't have in your previous era. We talked about that a lot with Josh Heupel. And it's like, all right, you know, it's, it's okay to feel good about that. It's okay to feel good about a top five recruiting class or all these other things. These are positive things. It's just such a small, small sample size. So just remember that before you tweet about how great or how terrible one of these guys is in year one. Let's kick it to Noah Eagle. If you don't know the name, I promise you will very, very soon. Uh, Noah is one of the, the top rising stars in the broadcasting industry. He called games for CBS last year. He's the son of Ian Eagle, who is as good as it gets at play-by-play. -play. I think we'll soon be talking about Noah Eagle. Um, not just that, oh, he's Ian Eagle's son, but that he is like the next Joe Buck or Jim Nance. I think he's that good. So here is Noah Eagle. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Noah Eagle. Noah, let's uh, let's break some news here off the top. Um, we we found out that the the CBS the CBS skeleton schedule is um, I mean <laughs> there, there's a lot of holes left to fill in it, but we we did find out that CBS has that night slot October eighth, which surprised no one because A and M Bama we expect that to be the night game on CBS. I know that this stuff isn't officially decided until like a couple weeks before, but how pumped are you to be, um, you know, on that three thirty call for Tennessee LSU and what I'm assuming would be your first trip to Baton Rouge? <laughs> we'll see, Connor. Listen, man, it, it's good to be here. I'm excited for whatever the future holds. Let's put it that way. I'm going to give you the very political, the very <laughs> Uh, what's the best word I'm looking for? Whatever it is, the, the best possible answer that I can do to not get in trouble. So that's that's what I'm going with, Connor. But either way, whatever uh, whatever the future has, I'm always looking forward to it for sure. I know uh, your broadcast partner, Aaron Murray, my guy, is going to be he's going to be pushing to to do that the Georgia Auburn game again. I mean, you guys did that last year. It's that same day you were on the call. You know, Rick Neuheisel on the call as well. Did you have to tell Aaron during that call last year to dial back the fist pumps when Lad McConkie <laughs> got over the top of the Auburn secondary? Well, it was just it was funny because, you know, that that was my first SEC game in person. I, I had never been to an SEC game. So to have it where we're, we're doing the Deep South's oldest rivalry, you know, a game that I grew up watching in general, Aaron performing in and then to see him pregame basically kissing every baby there signing you know what like everything that you would expect from a rock star which Aaron is in, in Georgia land in Bulldog land that's what he was doing like he was basically running the bleach 
pictures running the the entire uh, stands and just just going up and down because he had so many people to see pregame. So by the time he finally got back to the booth, I think he was out of breath from all the work he had to do pregame alone. He wasn't he didn't have enough energy to go fist pumping in the booth. He didn't have enough energy when uh, the mailman delivered the deep ball to Lad McConkie. So either way, it was fun. You know, I it, it would it would be cool to do a game in Athens with Aaron. He had already mentioned it to me. Because there was a chance we were going to do one of those games, uh, one of the other weeks, one of the other weeks we had. I think we ended up going to Arkansas, but there was a chance we'd go to Georgia the second they became the number one team in the nation. That that kind of went out the window. But he had mentioned it to me. He's like, "Hey, look, if we go to Athens, just just suspend whatever part of your brain you need to suspend. Follow me. Don't let just stay by my side, essentially, and you'll be fine. You won't pay for a single thing there." I'm like, "Yeah, that sounds about right. Sounds about." about right for the all-time touchdowns later in the conference. So I'm looking forward to potentially doing that. If it does happen, that would be really cool. Yeah. It's a win-win for you either way, like following around Aaron and kind of seeing the way that he interacts with his people is, is something. And I've seen it on multiple occasions where I'm like, Oh yeah. When, when you are at that level and you are doing, you know, what he did in his career and is one of the most high profile players that Georgia's had in the 21st century. Yeah. People, people treat you like a God. doesn't matter what you do in the NFL. Like you're, you're good. You're just taken care of. Um, growing, you talked about having that, uh, that first sec experience, you grew up on the East coast. Did you grow up like legit, like three thirty CBS I'm, I'm dialed <laughs> in, I'm watching those games. Cause like, I didn't grow up in it either, but sometimes like I have to remind people that that just kind of hits differently. And when the drums hit, you're just like, it feels important no matter what region of the country you're in. Yeah. Look, I think that if you grew up a sports fan, there are certain milestones, there are certain moments that always hit and that's certainly one of them you know sitting down on a Sunday for me watching an entire NFL slate had always been one of them big NBA games just I was always a big sports fan so college football fit into that and and watching the SEC in particular you know I think you always no matter where you are you have memories of big Iron Bowl games or any big Georgia game from my youth and so I you know I gave Aaron a lot of you know what for the Nick Fairley hit. I know we, we, we made light of it on the broadcast, but that was a moment for me growing up watching college football. That was huge. That was a massive game with two title contending title, hopeful type of teams, type of programs, obviously. And so it was like, it unlocked almost a core memory of something that I hadn't thought of of years. And then I heard, Oh, Aaron Murray, the first thing I could think of was that game. So yeah, it, it was something that was certainly part of my life. And I think it only heightened now that I've I've really experienced it in person because it is different. You don't you can get the essence of it to a certain degree watching it on TV, but now that I've actually been there and seen it and felt it, it's night and day. You just don't quite understand what is at stake and what it means to everybody that's there until you can feel it for yourself. How many times is too many times to say it just means more on a broadcast? You you set a <laughs> limit for yourself? Yeah, I would say the over under is 0.5. Yeah. I would say over under <laughs> Point five. I just, I can't, I can't go with the cliches. I gotta, I'm bet. I, I feel like I'm just, I gotta be better. You know what I mean? You gotta be better. You gotta take the step back and say, how can I improve? How can I change it? How can I reinvent the wheel a little bit? But it does mean more. It really does at the end of the day. So I guess you got to balance. It's a little bit of a balancing act. I say this because I think people need to know you're in your mid twenties. In addition to being that on, on that one of those crews for CBS, 
You're also doing play-by-play, calling Clippers games. You're calling, you know, matches for the tennis channel. You've got some college basketball in there. Like we were talking about it before we came on. Like you're kind of just doing everything right now. And, you know, we're going to get to the Nickelodeon game in a bit here. Trust me, we will definitely have some questions about that. When you walk into these production meetings with coaches, I got to imagine that you've had some coaches who have just been blown away with what you're doing at such an early age. To a certain degree, for sure. You know, I think the more you get to know some of these coaches, the easier it gets. And obviously they get to know you and then it just becomes normal. And they understand that you've put in the work and you've studied what you need to study and and you know the ins and outs that you need to know. It definitely helped for these games, the SEC games in particular, to have both Coach Neuheisel and Aaron on the call because they know everybody, especially the first game we did, that Auburn-Georgia game, Aaron really knew everybody because he knows everyone at Georgia. Bobo obviously was his quarterback's OC, everything at Georgia, and then now at Auburn. So at that time, it was easy for us. We had everything covered, essentially, and Brian Harson. They all covered him when he was in the Mountain West. So you had you had all these connections that made it easy for me to then just step in and almost be comfortable with them. You know, they would they would <laughs> they put me in a tough spot because they're like, no, why don't you start it off? I'm like, really? I'm starting it off other than Bobo. Bobo, Aaron just took the whole thing. It was like 25 <laughs> minutes of them talking about kids and lifestyle. And, and then finally, like, all right, by the way, football wise, I'm like, whoa, we, we needed this stuff for the entire game. But the one that stood out was Sam Pittman. I mean, I think everybody has talked about it now, just how amazing of a person Sam Pittman is, and especially for what we need. He gives us everything we possibly need. He's got a great sense of humor. But the first time we did Arkansas this year, he we asked a bunch of questions, and at the very end, we're getting off the call, and Sam goes, I'm going to botch the accent, by the way, but I'll, I'll go for it. He's just like, he's like, no, by the way, uh, you're a badass, man. I'm like, what? He's just like, I, I listened to the game last week. How old are you? I was like, I think I was 24 then still. So I was like, oh, I'm 24. He's just like, you're a badass, man. That's all. And he left. And that was it. And I was like, I'm ready to run through a wall. Like, why are you, who's next? Can we just keep it going? Can we just get the whole Pittman family at this point? And then we, we got him again. And he was just as awesome. So that that's cool. Like, those are, those are moments that I'll remember forever. And Sam is, that's him in a nutshell. He's someone who's always going to deflect and make everyone else feel good in the room, which I love. Pittman's a man. He's unbelievably genuine. And every single time we've had him on, we've had him on this show a couple of times. And every single time I get off, I, I end up feeling better. Uh, right. about the Lasso, like, yeah. you know what I mean? And there are very few people who I I think you probably come across where they're they're so dialed into what they're doing and understandably so they're going to give you more than they're going to give the random beat reporter because it's a production meeting. What you're saying on air isn't something that like, oh, they're going to take as as strategy and then they're going to be able to game plan against it or anything like that. So those interactions and when someone is like legit with you and you feel like, hey, they're they're acknowledging me as like a human being, that's incredible. And Pittman is like, as, as good as there is in this business, is there like a coach who, and maybe you don't have to name names, but you got into one of these settings and you're just like, you came away from it with the exact opposite feeling of, man, this guy kind of sucks. And I really, I really jive with this guy. Yeah. I think that it, it is really interesting and I'm getting more and more of these experiences with coaches and not just college football. You mentioned I do college basketball as well. I meet with the college basketball coaches. And so the personality will dictate a lot of it for sure. And a lot of these coaches have a pretty stern personality, especially on the basketball side of things. And you're really only talking to the head coach there versus 
for football, we do head coach, OC, DC of every team. And then sometimes teams will let us talk to certain players. Arkansas was great about that. We got to talk to KJ Jefferson, Grant Morgan, and uh, one of the Henry brothers at some point, I'm sure. So you knew that you were getting extra stuff from them as well versus for me, the college basketball, if the coach isn't good, if the coach doesn't want to give me a whole lot, then I'm screwed. I'm not getting anything, essentially. I have the same information as everyone else, which is fine at the end of the day. It is what it is. You move on. You can work with what you can work with. And all of that type of stuff is is bonus, which is really how I have to look at it either way. Because to your point, a coach might say something that they wouldn't say in a general media session, or they might say something that they don't actually want getting out. But because they're comfortable with Rick Neuheisel or Aaron Murray, they'll say, oh, yeah, no, we're good. We're just chatting about football. But now if I run with it on the broadcast and it gets back to that coach or it gets back to another coach that I, I basically dropped the trust of one of the other head coaches within the conference, that's not going to be good for me. That's that word's going to get around. So you have to make sure that, you know, hey, this is probably a good thing that I can get in there. This is probably something that I should just keep for myself. It's good background knowledge to have. And maybe I can use that and frame it in a different way so that the coach looks like he's been put in a good light or whatever it might be. But that to me is the balancing act and the most important aspect of those coaches or player meetings. You've got to understand, hey, this was a really good piece of information, but if I use it, I don't think I'll ever get a really good piece of that type of information ever again. So I think that's the challenge of it. I just wanted you to say Jim Beheim is the exact <laughs> opposite of Sam Pittman. That's all listen, I was looking for. Listen, the thing with Jim Beheim is both my parents went to Syracuse and obviously he was already there. And so I have, I have long ties. So he was fine with me, but I've seen him, I've seen him say some stuff and, and do some stuff that have just crushed kids, crushed kids. Right. I have full stories about that, that are not rated for podcasts. Like they, they go beyond rated R. So that's a different story. We'd have to dedicate a whole hour just to that. So yes, I mean, look, Jim Beheim, I still love, and I still love my huge family, but there are moments for sure. I remember being in college and uh, Joe Buck came to speak in Indiana where he went to school for three years before he dropped out, becomes yep. a play-by-play guy for the Cardinals. <laughs> and at the time, you know, I was a 20-year-old kid or whatever, and I'm, I'm thinking, all right, that, that's really impressive that he was able to do that. Now I look back on that and think that's one of the most impressive things I've ever heard in broadcasting to do that because there's a certain level of confidence that you have to have. And because – Look, I, I I think you absolutely have it. And I can tell every time you're on the call and I've heard people twice your age that don't have that level of confidence and that level of self-assurance where, when did that sort of, I belong moment kind of come for you? Was there one specific time where it was just kind of all clicked and you're like, all right, this makes sense. And I feel comfortable going into any setting just as long as I'm prepped. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that anything that you do in life, you need to do it with this belief of, Hey, I'm really good at what I do. And that, I don't care if you're someone who's performing as a broadcaster or actor, or whatever. I don't care if you're a doctor. I don't care if you're working construction, like anything you got to do in life, you have to do with supreme confidence in yourself. And that, that comes with more reps doing it over and over and over and over again. Because when I started broadcasting, I got to Syracuse, which is very competitive. Indiana is very similar it's a competitive program. And so a lot of kids, because of everybody who came before they get there and they've already done stuff, they already have tape and they've already called games. And I wasn't that I, I got there and I had done basically nothing. You know, I, I did maybe one interview in high school one time and that was it. 
So I was almost a, a blank canvas, which I actually liked better because now I could hit the ground running and just work, 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 put my head down, see how better I could get. But when I first started, I was I was not good. Now, you can listen back to some of those tapes. I have a, a whole story. The first play by play I got to do in college was high school football. That's the hierarchy there. The hierarchy at Syracuse is legit. You need to basically climb it. So the first experience I got was a high school football game. And in order to get cleared, you have to keep making tapes. And so I I grew up a Jets fan, long suffering Jets fan. (laughs) And so all I would do is find Jets games to make these tapes over the summer so that I could get cleared as quickly as possible going into my sophomore year. And the Jets team that year was the year prior was the team that won 10 games and missed the playoffs, a game I went to in Buffalo because it was nearby and Ryan Fitzpatrick throw several interceptions to (laughs) throw away what was a fantastic season, but that's a different point altogether. I do love Ryan Fitzpatrick. All this to say, I was doing every Jets game. I was doing, let's say, half a quarter one day, then another. the next day I would do the other half of the quarter, then the next day I would do a half a quarter, and I was just doing it every day, and I got through a lot of their games. So I was so used to the Jets. So I finally get cleared to do high school football on the first play of this high school game. The, the quarterback's name was like Joe Smith or something, and he drops back, and I'm like, Fitzpatrick to pass. And it was was the first play of my first game I'm ever calling. And I, I called a high school kid, Ryan Fitzpatrick. And the guy I was doing with looked at me like, who? And I was just, I was so, I was so ready. I was so primed. It wasn't, it wasn't, he, he did not have the arm or the beard of Ryan Fitzpatrick, but they ran the ball a lot. So it ended up being fine. And once I got past that, I, I tried to get in a rhythm. But if you listen to that first game, you'd be like, that's not the same person because it doesn't sound like the same person. I was so not used to having to think quickly on my feet like that. I'd been practicing, but this is now finally live with, with players. I don't know as well as I know as the, the jets players and stuff like that. So it, it just came with time. I think the more time you dedicate to anything, if you want to be a great football player, you want to be a great quarterback, you got to throw the ball a lot. You've got to work on your accuracy, your power. If you want to be a great basketball player, you want to be a great shooter. You got to go outside or, or to a gym and shoot every day and make a thousand threes or whatever it is every day. It's all repetition. You want to be a great piano player. You got to keep practicing. And so I think the confidence just came for me the more I did it. And then certainly once I started with the Clippers and I I got a couple regular season games under my belt, I was like, oh, oh, okay. I haven't, I haven't messed anything up. You know, I'm, I'm doing my job and I'm not disappointing anybody. So I know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm all good. And I think the more assignments like that you get, the easier it gets for sure. One of the most unique assignments a broadcaster has ever gotten. You have on your resume. Uh, I'm a Bears fan. Uh, you? Oh no, no, no! Look, at, I'm, I'm repping right here too. I uh, see it, and you got the helmet behind. You're ready to go, Mike Dick. Uh, you know, type of feel to you. You got the beard working. You know, that's the be- that's the best compliment I'm going to get. Probably, <laughs> maybe, definitely all month, maybe all year to to compare me to Dick. I've got the Jim McMahon book. No big deal. Oh, I yeah. read. Um, yeah. yeah I, look, I'm a long suffering Bears fan. You're a long suffering Jets fan. When that first came out, the idea that they're going to do this Nickelodeon playoff game that you did uh, over, I guess that was over a year ago, January 2021. I, at first, I'm thinking to myself, like, what are they doing? But then I realized I'm a Bears fan without kids. 
So I am literally the last person that they are doing this for. And this is to supplement coverage, not to replace it. This is to bring in a new audience. And, and people loved it and loved it in part because of how you approach the call. And I actually went back and I looked back at, at like the, the Twitter mentions and whatnot. And usually people just rip announcers. And instead, it's like all this positivity. And it was so cool to, to kind of see this. Can you take us through the process of both how you got that opportunity and then how that approach was so different from probably all of the any game you've ever called in the past? Yeah, it's a good question, Connor, and, and it's absolutely correct. Getting the actual job or the, the role was interesting because essentially what happened was when CBS joined the Paramount tree, it means that they, they have merged with all the other commodities, so Nickelodeon being one of them. And, and I guess the NFL was really excited about this idea that CBS and Nickelodeon had come up together to put – an NFL playoff game on the channel. And as they say, nickify it all, which I have to be very careful to say. And they have, you know, added the slime and all the other stuff. And the idea to your point was you want to cater to kids anywhere from let's say five through 12, maybe even younger than that. But that's generally the age range that we were, we were trying to hit cater to those kids who weren't, what football fans or weren't sports fans. You want to captivate a, a large audience base of possibilities of possible future football fans and see if you can captivate them in any way, shape or form. That was our goal. And that was how it was explained to me. And so what happened was CBS, they had mentioned me as an, op uh, an option essentially to do it. And Nickelodeon said, okay, well, we want to talk to them. So they reached out to me. This was probably September, 2020. Oh, and yeah, we did a zoom or so. Uh, maybe it was even, yeah, I think it was September because it was right around the French open. So, and that was when it was pushed back. So September, 2020, we do a zoom and basically I just tell them all about me growing up watching Nickelodeon, all the shows I watched, all my knowledge about the channel and obviously my love for the sport of football and, and how I felt like I could be a good asset for them and really just got to know them. And so a couple of days later, they're like, Hey, we want you to do it. I said, that would be amazing because honestly, Connor, this was, this is the pinnacle of what I would want to do in, in general. I want to combine sports entertainment together. I want people to have fun when they're watching sports and I want to have fun while I'm calling it. And so this was the perfect assignment for me because I love calling these games. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to give that up for anything. An SEC game is unbelievable. And the stakes at hand are unbelievable. That that Georgia Auburn game was incredible. I, I was just going back to watch some of the highlights from the the Arkansas Auburn game the following week, which ended up being a really fun game. I love calling that stuff, but the fun that we got to have was so different than the fun that I have calling those games. And it was that type of changeup that really excited me, and that challenge of trying to figure out the right tone of how to present it that I was really excited about. And so. The preparation of it was interesting. I wasn't focused on all the stuff necessarily that I would normally be focused on. Now, don't get me wrong. I still put together all my charts. I still had all the facts that I would need just in case about Mitch Trubisky or about Drew Brees or about Michael Thomas or Alvin Kamara or David Montgomery. Go down the list of all the players that I had to get ready for. I was still ready if I had to call it like a normal game because you never know what the opportunity might require. And what the situation is going to require when it gets down to the nitty gritty. But what I was focused on was we had questionnaires for players. 
of their favorite ice cream and their favorite superhero and cartoon and what they wanted to be when they grew up. We got to talk to a couple players about that. Cordero Patterson had some really interesting answers, which was not unexpected, let's say. But that was what I enjoyed. And then my other favorite part about getting ready for the game was I got to go back and watch all my favorite Nickelodeon shows from growing up and the newer shows so I could immerse myself in what they're currently pushing out so I can make references. I I remember the first year we did it on my chart, I just jotted down, I think, 50 Nickelodeon references that maybe I could get to during the game. Jeez, I think I only used two of them (laughs) or I used others that I didn't even write down because I think I had eight or 10 by the end of the game, but only two that I wrote down. So it's really just about almost giving yourself enough ammo for any situation that that comes across. And the biggest thing with that game, with that broadcast, from that point on, you just got to have fun. And if you have fun, the hope is everyone else does too. The Hey Arnold references kind of write themselves, no? Oh, yeah. With football head, like, oh, yeah. You Of those 50, what, like a dozen Hey Arnold references? I think I had a lot of SpongeBob just because that's the most recognizable. I, I was going by, by how recognizable everything would be. Hey Arnold, I had at least five, I would say. Okay. If, I, if I'm just going to go percentage, I would say that was at least 10%. But that was also because it's 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 our generation of what we watched growing up. I had to make sure I spread it across all. So I had to go before that. I had to go into the 90s, some good burger references. Ooh. I had to do some some original all of that. We had to go even further, like Ren and Stimpy. We had to go. Oh, we had uh, Guts. We had a little Guts yes. in there. We, we, had, so we had everything, right? So Legends of the Hidden Temple. So we had to go way back. Then we had to hit the 2000s. That was what Nate and I were really trying to do. Nate Burleson and I were just trying to hit all the old references. And then we tried to tee up the kids for the newer references, the newer shows that I necessarily hadn't watched before getting ready. So that was the challenge also was trying to figure out how can we just get across and almost bring and reel everybody in, all generations in, which we felt like we did a pretty good job. It's it's cool to think that a lot of dads out there probably had this unique, genuine moment with with their kids, and you got to be the voice of that. But at the same time, how tough is it to kind of keep that in perspective while Mitch Trubisky is throwing six <laughs> yards behind the sticks in a do-or-die game, and you're like, hey, man, points are good. You actually need those right now. Yeah, Trubisky had the one where I think they, they ran a flea flicker, right? And he had a wide-open receiver in the end zone, and honestly he put it on the money it was the receiver who dropped it I don't even was it uh Darnell Mooney maybe or someone who I don't remember who it was but they dropped it in the end zone and that was the only play where it was like oh Chicago's here they they had a chance and if they if they had scored that play I think that game could have been completely different but yeah it was tough it was a little tougher when Trubisky was winning MVP because (sighs) yeah so so for those who don't know we, we ran an award, the Nickelodeon Valuable Player, the MVP, not the MVP. And we figured it was a voting system, but we didn't, we didn't know going in how many people were going to be watching the game. And in particular, that the guys from Barstool Sports were going to be watching the game and part of my take. And they're master trolls. They're, they're hilarious. They're master trolls, though. And the second Trubisky started struggling and they recognized the Bears were not going to be coming back in that game, they started pushing that narrative that Mitch should be winning that MVP award. And so then it put us in an interesting position because the producer's getting in my ear. I'm going on talkback. I said, are we promoting the MVP? He goes, yeah, just a second. I'm like, just a second. So now I call another play. I'm like, MVP? He goes, one minute. I'm like, as in a minute or 
then finally goes, okay, here's the deal. The MVP voting is a landslide right now. I said, oh, great. Who is it? Drew Brees, Alvin Kamara, Cam Jordan. It's like, it's Mitch Trubisky. And Nate Burleson goes. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. I said, what, what's the reason? He goes, we're looking into it. Uh, 30 seconds later, he goes, okay, so apparently the Barstool guys have been pushing this narrative. So you're just going to have to go with it. Just go with it. I said, all right. So we acted like, you know, it was a surprising result, but good for Mitch. You know, we tried to make it seem like it was uplifting enough, but that was the old, that was the biggest hurdle for us, I would say. Not necessarily the game as much, although we had to describe some stuff and Cordero Patterson maybe had some some tough language at one point in the middle <laughs> of the game. But outside of that, the game was pretty it, – it told itself, and we, we got to just use the slime or whatever else to our advantage. But the MVP was – a hurdle. We had to figure out how to best frame that, which was not easy. Shooting Jake Mark Marsh a text saying, "Hey man, uh, can you uh, can you call off the dogs?" There was there was no like he didn't even give you a warning of that because no, obviously no like, it's part of my take guys who who are at the the forefront of that. And you know what? Like it's kind of a it became like a funny thing to see Mitch actually have the N- MVP trophy as well. Like no warning whatsoever from Jake that this was that this was on the way. No, no, I. It was funny. So the reason I think they were so into the game was because of Jake, at least. I think Jake was really excited that I was doing the game because we're friends from college. We were a year apart and we were pretty close. So I think Jake was telling them, like, we got to watch the Nickelodeon version. And I think both Big Cat and PFT were like, hey, you know what? Yeah, let's try it out. And then once you got going, they were super into it. So he was the reason they were watching in in the first place. But they had no idea what they were doing about MVP until the actual moment. And I decided, Nate and I both decided before the game, we're not going to look at our phones at all because we don't want to be influenced by anything. I During most games, I'll look at Twitter, which I've got a funny SEC story about Twitter during a game. But this game, I didn't want to look at anything because I didn't want anyone's words to me, whether it be a text or a tweet, to be a positive or negative influence on the broadcast. I just wanted it to be a clean slate. So I... I got back to my phone afterward, and I think Jake had texted me just some stuff about the MVP stuff, but I had 350 text messages after that game. So it took me, it it actually took me to get through all the text tweets and everything else until the next night. It took basically a full 24 hours. It was, it was crazy. I don't think I've ever been inundated with stuff like that before. And it goes to show that we definitely made an impression, which was really cool. That was really just a, a cool moment more than anything. But Jake did not give me a heads up. He did this year when we did the game. Before the game, he said, hey, we're starting to think up who we want to be the MVP before the game. Uh, here, obviously. He goes, here goes, here, he said, here are the five candidates or whatever it was. He gave me like the five names. And then during the game, it, it just derailed. Once the Cowboys were down, they're like, got to be Dak. I'm like, all right, <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> Okay, so what's the story of you checking your phone during an SEC game? So we did our last game we did this year. The the crew of me, Coach Aaron, and, and Jenny Dell was right after the day after Thanksgiving, that Arkansas-Missouri game. Missouri travels to Arkansas for senior day. What would be a, a fantastic finish to a fantastic year, uh, program-defining Tiger for Arkansas. So all these great storylines, right? And Arkansas starts running away with the game. They were just much better. And Jefferson, Traylon Burks were connecting on ridiculous plays left and right. And I think Traylon Smith had a, a big touchdown run at one point. 
Uh, Rocket Sanders had a, a huge run early in the third quarter that basically broke the game open. So it was it was one of those games where it was starting to slip away. Missouri wasn't really going to get back into it. And there was a, a touchdown call that was being reviewed. It was a play where Traylon Burks busted to the outside. Basically what happened was KJ Jefferson, I think, pitched it to Burks, who ran to the outside, last second pitched it back. Rocket Sanders took it in. And it was a close call, but he was in for the touchdown. So we're, we're going through the replays, and we bring Gene Steratore in. And Gene Steratore is talking about the play, whatever. And then Coach Neuhausel goes, Gene, how was your Thanksgiving? And he goes, oh, Coach, my Thanksgiving. You know, we've got a traditional Italian family, so we had a traditional Italian Thanksgiving with meatballs and eggplant parm or whatever else. He was saying all the foods, right? And the second he stopped, I decided for whatever reason, I had just seen the clip. I'd watch the show straight through, but I just seen the clip on Twitter yesterday before of Tony Soprano at the Thanksgiving dinner going time for Turkey sandwiches is throwing the stuff at the grandpa. And so I just decided to take a leap of faith and go, Gene, whenever I hear Italian Thanksgiving, I think time for Turkey sandwiches, Tony Soprano legend. That's what I said on the air and Aaron and Rick are laughing and I get a tweet immediately, just immediately. And this is, I find these funny. Like, I, I truly do find these funny. And I, I think I told Aaron and Rick during the next break about it, and they were cracking up. But the guy on Twitter goes, whoever did that Tony Soprano impression during the Arkansas game should face the North Korean justice system. Whoa. Which then I, but but here's the thing. It's, it's funny when you take this and really think about it. Like, imagine if I actually had to go to North Korea. They say, well, <laughs> what'd you do? Go ha! Well, I did a Tony Soprano impression during an Arkansas Missouri game. They're like, behead this man! What are they going to say? Like, what are they going to do? What would they have been offended about with Tony Soprano? But I, that was one of the funnier tweets I've ever gotten, and I really feel like I need to start using that phrase because it can be damaging to somebody. It really can. Okay, so during a game this year that Noah's on the call for, uh, Tennessee LSU, of course, um, <laughs> totally don't text Noah or, or tweet at Noah during the game and do that because he will then it will then become a thing that he'll be thinking about the rest of the game. Don't do that. Everybody, everybody listening, positive vibes only. We're not going to text anything. Please, next please do do that because it honestly raised our frequency in the, in the booth. When they started cracking up, I think we just enjoyed the fourth quarter. It was great. So it, it worked out perfectly. Please do. Feed awesome. it. I love that. Uh, I, I try to get as far as I possibly could. And you can uh, tell me if, if this is the case here. Is this a record for the furthest somebody has ever gotten into an interview with you and not brought up your dad? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it might be. Yeah. Man, what are we, 34 minutes in? That's impressive yeah. stuff. Yeah. I, so I, 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 you probably get these reminders all the time, but it, it's also got to be awesome because for my money, like your dad's a legend. I mean, he is. I, I would listen to the Eagle family broadcast. My neighbors doing yard work, like it's it's that good. And I'm sure many people. I mean, we're available this. for a, for our fee as long as you can hit our fee. You're good, dude. July gets real slow, man. I'll tell you what, we're, we're, we get desperate around here. Uh, you you guys getting to to probably have all these experiences growing up. What, what's your best childhood memory of being able to kind of hang out with your dad in some of these iconic venues? I've got a lot of memories and not, some of them, it depends what you, what your definition of iconic is iconic in positive or negative ways. I told you I was a Jets fan. So I would go to my, go with him to certain Jets games, including that Buffalo game. I mentioned week 17 in 2016 or 15, I think, but 
a couple of years before that, I was at the Jets game on Thanksgiving. He was doing the radio call, Jets Patriots, and uh, Mark Sanchez decides it would be a good idea to drop back, tuck it, run. I think it was Brandon Moore, maybe, who he ran into his backside. And the the play that would forever be known as the butt fumble happened. I It was scooped up for a touchdown. I witnessed it live in person, and that is a memory seared into my brain forever. Forever. So there's there's those types of memories for sure. But there are memories, in ter- I think, not even specific times. It's, it's almost every time. Every time I would go with my dad, I would just I would watch as he interacted with everybody. Everyone was always really excited to see him. That's something that opened out to me. He knew everybody's name. He knew their kids' names. He knew everything about them. And it wasn't just, oh, his, his broadcasting partner or his stats person. It was everyone cameramen it was runners it was interns like everybody and so that's those are the memories that I always had because we would go for football games we'd show up we'd go to press room we'd get a meal and people would come up to him every time he knew them and every time he knew something about him and every time they would have at least five minute conversations and so I realized that so much of this industry like every industry is about how good are you with your relationships? How good are you with people? Because you can be the best broadcaster in the world, but if nobody likes you, nobody likes you. And if you, if you don't have genuine, true, good relationships with people, it's never going to work itself out. So I started focusing on how can I make myself good in that side of things just as much as the broadcasting side of things. And so it was always that blending act and that balancing act of the two. But those are the memories that I always had with him. And going with him to those games, it was like learning through osmosis. So I said I didn't do any broadcasting until college, which is true. But I had a knowledge base of how the sausage was made. And that, that for me, was a little bit of a confidence boost of, okay, I know what it takes. I used to sit in his office for hours when I was a toddler and a young, young kid and just go through media guides when they were still physically a thing. I would just read through them and, and, and toss through all the pages and watch him as he essentially prepared every single week for three games and, and watching his time management. So then when I got to that and I was doing several games a week now, I had an idea, a template of how it goes. Now, he's still a dinosaur in hours because he still does everything by hand, which he's one of the few. Every single thing he does is by hand, which means every single time he does it, he has, he has to redo it by hand. Sometimes I'll do a combo, especially for these SEC games. The, the outlet's going to be printed, so I don't have to redo that ever. But sometimes I'll write stuff in. A lot of times I will. But to do everything by hand, I don't know. I just feel like that's you're, – you're straining your hand muscles for no reason by doing that. So I don't know. Maybe he's going to just have brutal arthritis by the time he gets to 65. Who knows? The, the boards that some of these play-by-play guys have, it's just like – Oh, listen, man. I got – they're all right here. Let's see. I got all of these. I mean, just stacks of them. Oh, they're my just gosh. building. Yeah, building up, ready to go. Those things take a long time, and the prep that that goes into it. Um, you're both play-by-play announcers, so it's not necessarily like a given that this could happen. But have you and your dad talked about being able to call a game together? What, what exactly would that that setting kind of kind of look like? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny, Connor. I don't think we've actually talked about doing a game together, concrete at least conversations about it. Maybe we've joked about it once or twice, but. I don't think we ever see that happening necessarily just because to your point, it's the same role. You never know. There's the Manning cast and these alternate broadcasts now. So 
it's very possible that it could happen one day. We we had talked once or twice maybe about, oh, would it be would it be interesting if we did a podcast like the Bird's Nest podcast or something? But I don't think that'll happen either necessarily, or at least not right now. So, you know, I think one of the coolest moments for us was when I got to do the Syracuse Miami game as a junior in college at Miami basketball. And he was doing the game for CBS. And the only reason I got to do it was because our sports director at the time, who was two year, a year older than me. So I was a junior as a senior, my friend, Sean Salisbury, he was in charge of the radio station at the time. I went to him once I found out my dad was doing the game. I was like, look, I might never get this opportunity again. Is there any way that I could do it? And he had already given the assignment to two people, two, two other classmates of mine that were a year older than me. And so he said, well, let me talk to them. And it required one of them to sacrifice. And the one who did to go full circle was Jake Marsh. Ah. Jake was from Florida, by the way. So yep. it was a big deal for him to go back home. He's from that area. He said, I get it. I understand. I talked to him. You know, it. he got a different assignment, a couple different assignments later. He ended up getting to do the tournament. He got to do that second round upset over Michigan State. So it, it ends up working out and balancing out. And obviously, he's had a, a really good start to his career now. But at the time, that was a huge deal. You know, I don't think he was thrilled about it at first because he was going to see family. So I never forget that. I do owe him that because I, I if it wasn't for that, I would have never gotten the opportunity to go there, be with my dad. And then CBS said, hey, uh, are you cool to interview him? I'm like, sure. Like I said, when? They go, how about now? I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, okay. Said, what do you want me to ask him? They go, whatever. I'm like, how long you want it to be? They go, yeah, five to eight minutes. I'm like, okay. Oh. And, and then 30 seconds later, they go, and go. I'm like, what, what the, what? And we just went. And, and the reason I think it went so well that was like the first thing I did that that got major publicity in any way, shape or form. It got a million views on Twitter. It, and that was a, another one where my phone was blowing up. And the, I think the reason that it, it was that was because it was basically what we do at the dinner table it was basically what we do in everyday life. You know, we just dig on each other, make jokes back and forth. And that was the interview. It was just father and son being father and son. And I think that's, again, what resonated with people. So we got to do it then. We got to do it a couple of times since then, the interviewing back and forth, which is always special. And anytime we get to call the same game is really special. And so those are moments that I'll never forget for sure. But calling a game together would obviously be a different level altogether. For sure. For sure. I've got uh, five rapid fire questions for you. Just first thing that comes to mind. Does that work for you? I like fire of the rapid variety. So let's do it. <laughs> All right, you're a Syracuse grad, Dinosaur Barbecue. Overrated, underrated, or properly rated? I think it's properly rated. I think the mac and cheese is way overrated, though. Yeah, the, the lines, it's, I've only been there once, but the line itself was like, okay, this is this better be really, really good, and I was definitely satisfied. It was not one of those yeah. things where I walked away being very disappointed. There's New York Barbecue. I know New York Barbecue got dragged last year, but it's like Dinosaur Barbecue, it holds up very well. Dinosaur barbecue is very good. Like if you're not going to, it's not going to match what you're going to get in Texas, yeah. but it's good for what it is. I think that's why it's properly rated. Okay. Uh, say something that would make me like Rick Neuheisel. <laughs> he can have a conversation with the paint on the walls. All right. The dude, I, that was my favorite thing about Rick Neuheisel was at first I wasn't sure how it was going to go 
with him just because I've only really seen him from afar. We had talked once or twice through Sirius XM when I was maybe doing the show after him or before him and they were about to get on him and, and Chris Childers. And so I, that was really the only interaction I had with him. And then I watched him, anybody he can talk to and he can find common ground with them. And I, I love him for it. He does love golf too, if you're a golf fan. Okay, I, I need to I need to be able to kind of give him a chance a little bit more as a broadcast, but we can say that for another time. <laughs> um, has Kawhi Leonard ever given you a multi-sentence answer in an interview? Yes. Yes, he has. That was a big shock to me, but there was All-Star Weekend 2020 in Chicago. He won the MVP of the game, and I was the first person to do a one-on-one interview with him after the game, and he gave me two answers that were pretty long. One of them was about Kobe Bryant, so that, that mm-hmm. helped. But yes, that was shocking. Dang. Uh, Jim Nance gives his tie to the MVP of the NCAA tournament. When you take his place and call <laughs> national championships for decades, I, I, I think you need to one up him in, in some way, maybe like a post game cigar or something mm-hmm. with the MVP. Have, do you have a thought about what would be kind of your signature move there? Yeah, maybe like my big toenail, I clip it off and they can really have it forever and they can maybe then replicate me and, and make another Noah Eagle. No, I would say, well, the funny thing is, I don't think we're going to be wearing ties deep into the future. You know, I think that's going away. So ties themselves, that's not going to be an option. Maybe I'm going to have to give my sweater that I'm wearing at the time or my my polo. You don't know. I, yeah, maybe it's going to be like a jersey swap, actually. I want that. I want to take my shirt off after a broadcast and jersey swap with a national champion. That is now the only goal I have in my life. I didn't even think about it until <laughs> this very moment, but I am all in on that. You got to take off the Lululemon pants and just swap them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. The ABC for the DEF. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, last one. Your dream event to call is what? So I, I've, I grew up such a big basketball fan. I think it would be hard for me not to say the NBA finals, but either the college football national championship or the Super Bowl is right up there too. Like the stakes there and, and how many people are going to be watching. But at the same time, I feel like maybe the man, this is a good question. You see, I don't really put much thought about it. I really just keep following. I, I would say the NBA finals is, is where, where I'm going to be. It's where I'm going to end up in terms of my choice. But the other ones are definitely enticing too. Can just, I just say everything? Just everything. Yeah. Yeah. Let me just say everything. Yeah. Good answer. No, I really appreciate the time, man. Uh, best of luck with everything and enjoy Baton Rouge this fall. <laughs> I appreciate it, Connor. Thanks for having me on, man. What's my destiny, Mom? You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. Life is a box of chocolates, Forrest. You never know what you're going to get. Figuring it out, we are talking about what you wanted to be when you grew up. Will, I don't know if I know the answer to this. What did you want to be when you grew up? Assuming, and let's take the, the context out of this. We're assuming that you are currently satisfied in your job profession mm-hmm. and that you don't aspire to still be like, I don't know, Joe Burrow. <laughs> yeah, I think the window's closed. He's a little bit older for an NFL quarterback, but I think, sure. I think the, Joe, for, the Joe Burrow ship has sailed. Yeah, I think uh, this is going to sound immature, but growing up, I loved Top Gun and I wanted to be a fighter pilot. Uh, nice. <laughs> And uh, yeah, so, and then like my mom was a realtor, so I was like, I'll go into real estate. And then I ended up in marketing, which is pretty close to real estate. So yeah, I mean, I work, uh, you know, I do shoots, I make memes and stuff. So it's not like I have like a, ah, you lost the game job. But yeah, fighter pilot was a very lofty expectation. 
I am seeing we're seeing the new one three hours after we're going to be recording this. So I am very, very excited. First time I've bought tickets for a movie three years, probably. Heck yeah, man. I'm pumped because that's that's one of those things too. And even even though you didn't grow up as a child of the '80s, I think before reality sets in, having those visions of wait a minute, I like I can be anything I want to be. You mm-hmm. hear that? You hear teachers say things like this, and you're like, I don't care how feasible it is. I don't care if I don't have the genetic makeup for it. I don't care <laughs> if I don't even have the brain power for it. Let me do exactly that. And there's something about that that innocence that I I wish I had longer in life. I really do, where I was able to get to a certain age and like, I don't know, everybody, like if you watch the movie Rudy, everybody talks to Rudy as if he still has this twinkle in his eye of doing something that's absolutely impossible. And the thing that you, as like a consumer of that movie, as long as you're not some big like anti-Notre Dame person, you're, you're watching this movie going, oh, isn't that, isn't that amazing that, that this person is like doing this through college of like hearing all this negativity about something so unrealistic. And I, I think about that a lot. And like, at what age does it hit you when, you're, when you realize, oh, I can't do something. I'm guessing the majority of people listening to this wanted to be a professional athlete in mm-hmm. some capacity, right? Like most of us aren't sitting there in first and second grade going, you know what? I just don't have the chops to do this. <laughs> <laughs> Vertical is looking a little bit. I do that pacer test, man, not in first place. <laughs> yeah. um, um, look, man, if, if I can't finish in, in, in the top half of Miss Kruger's second grade class in the mile, my professional <laughs> athlete chops are going to be limited. No, I, I don't think I fully acknowledge that I wasn't going to be a professional <clears throat> athlete until middle school because I, want, I wanted to be in the NBA. Right. I mean, that was like growing up in the suburbs of Chicago, Bulls, I've said it many, many a time, six of my first eight years on earth were NBA championships and that was that was everything. And so when I was like real little, I went from little tykes hoop up to the big boy hoop. I was shooting on the big boy hoop in kindergarten. I was not messing around. Oh yeah, like, that was like the Lamelo Ball, right? That's what Lavar did to the kids. He was like, "Hey, you gotta learn how to play with a full size basketball." You have to. I mean, if if you're still playing on the on the little tykes hoop into like second grade or something like that, you're behind. Mm-hmm. You're just behind. And I was I was gonna be like, "Hey, look, I I I know I'm the only one in my kindergarten class that's going home and shooting on a regulation size hoop with a regulation size basketball, and that's gonna make me better." And then I realized that I'm gonna be 5'8", <laughs> and, and nothing else is gonna matter. Uh, but I, I didn't have that realization until about, um, probably about middle school, that that was definitely not gonna happen. But I am fortunate enough to be one of those people who, fifth grade, and I've told this, this story again before, so I won't like get into too many details about it again, but like fifth grade creative writing assignment, and they're like, just write about anything you want, anything. Like, okay, I'll write about Game three of the 1993 NBA Finals, Bulls, Suns, triple overtime game, old Chicago Stadium, this incredible game that obviously I don't really have serious recollections of, but I've read about a bunch of different times. Mm -hmm. And I told myself, if I could write about that, oh yeah, I'll absolutely do it. And I remember doing this assignment and then going to a friend's house and being like, fired up. You're like, (laughs) oh my God, I just got to write about sports? Like what, what? Like I've never been able to do that before. And ever since that moment in fifth grade, I have had my, my sort of vision of being a sports writer. Originally I wanted to, to, to write about, I, I wanted to, to cover the Cubs for the Tribune. That mm-hmm. was 
that was the dream back in the day. And then you kind of get older and you realize, do I want to be writing about baseball in August and 162 games and yep. not seeing my family for like four or five months out of, for like probably like five, six months out of the year? No, probably not. Probably not. Okay. But reality, reality set in for me, but I was able to kind of mostly do what I aspired to do as a kid. And I feel very fortunate in that regard. First off, that story is fire. I love that that you were writing like a gamer in fifth grade and you were just like, yes, this Dude, is like ready. rebounding advantage all the way in the suns. But MJ, what are you going to do? You know? Uh, yeah, no, that uh, that's that's like super cool, man. It's very cool that you got to like kind of pursue your passion. Like that's part of what got me thinking about this. It's like a, a weird throwback. But whenever you're talking about that one guy being like sports, whatever you're coming up, it's like it's funny yeah. how like we um, – let me ask you this. When you were coming up as a sports writer, did you do the thing where you started to emulate like all the ESPN guys? Because I did that. Um, to a certain extent. To, to a certain extent. We, in our household, my brother and I would watch, uh, pardon the interruption, and mm -hmm. BTI, yeah. we'd watch that. We'd watch around the horn and stuff like that. And then when it wasn't on, and then my brother and I would get into these debates and my dad would always tell us, you know, this isn't this isn't BTI. I told that story before. <laughs> I love that so much. Yeah. And we're like, well, you know what? Maybe we could be doing something like that someday. So maybe we should kind of get our reps in right now. Mm -hmm. um, and look at you, know, you now, on fine bomb. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like, hey, dad, it's a good thing I was doing this in sixth grade and getting right. into legit back and forth discussions because it so kind of prepped me for this. Those championship yeah. reps, all right? Right. And so like we would we would definitely do stuff like that growing up, but. Um, I probably tried on a couple of Stuart Scott-isms, mm -hmm. rest in peace, uh, a booyah here or there. Um, Rich Eisen growing up, any child in the 90s who loves sports, loves Sports Center and yep. watching those replays and the, the memories I have of watching it for the fourth time through mm -hmm. when I slept over at my aunt's house. And I'm like, I know exactly what they're gonna say about this Mariners Angels highlight. And I know that Jay Buhner flew out to right field, but Ken Griffey Jr. had this unbelievable sacrifice, like unbelievable run scored on this incredible slide. I know what they're gonna say when he gets to play. So stuff like that, yeah, absolutely. But not to the point where it was like my entire personality. Although probably some people will disagree with that. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I know, like, we're probably gonna get to that because a couple of people said they wanted to be sports writers, but that's one thing, like, I remember coming up because I wanted to be a sports writer, I wanted to be in sports. And it's like, you could always tell, like, the people that were really into it growing up, and especially in, like, high school and college, because they had, like, all of those reps down, all of those, like, isms and stuff. And so it's just interesting how that stuff can just kind of shape you as you grow up, you know? Yeah, and uh, I, I think having parents who are who are supportive and not just telling you, you need to go into a specific field because mm -hmm. of because of money. I mean, there it, I, and I'm not a parent yet, so I can't really speak to this. But I got to imagine it's a really tough line to walk with with a lot of these professions when you're, you're going to college and you're realizing afterwards that a specific major or something like that is not going to make you any sort of money. But if your child has been saying since they were in fifth grade that they want to do something, kind of just like all right. Go make it happen. We yep. believe in you. We trust in you. Even though you're going to be in debt for 10 years doing this and chasing this field. Aren't we hey, all? Yeah. <laughs> just go do it. So um, applaud. I applaud all the parents out there who have been able to kind of stick by their kids and and um, entrust their judgment as they get older and not necessarily kind of be like, hey, like, I'm, I'm going to be the reason that you stop doing this, child. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you right from wrong. And I'm sure people listening to this have dealt with that. And that's... 
that's unfortunate. Sometimes it's needed and sometimes it's not. And sometimes it's like, wow, that kind of sucks to have to hear that at a, a later point in life. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so Facebook group, we asked the questions, how old were you when you had your goal of whatever you wanted to be when you grew up? How old were you when you realized it could or couldn't happen? Um, and then what was the biggest hurdle standing in your way of living out your childhood dream? We've got a lot. Great responses here. I don't think we're going to be able to get to all of them. We'll try though. We'll try. Um, let's go. Let's start with this one from Tiffany R. Tiffany says, I always wanted to be a teacher when I grew up from the time I was five through high school. I even did the teacher cadet program my junior year. I realized it wasn't going to happen my junior year of high school after seeing how underpaid and disrespected teachers are. Yep. Tried to go from my biology degree in college to go to uh, PA school. But change majors after year two of organic chemistry. Long story short, I now work for a payroll company. Teacher is one of those jobs. As, as a son of a teacher, um, shout out to my mom who is retiring this week. Mm-hmm. Um, and is oh, congrats to Mom O'Gara. Let's go. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's going to be a, a different a different chapter in her life. It's it's weird. Like I've I've only known her to be a teacher and. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for for those who have been in in this profession, you've seen some like people talk about the benefits, which look having summers off, <laughs> some of these holidays that the teachers get off, especially in the suburbs of Chicago where they'll have hol- they'll have holidays off. Then I'm just like okay, so that's why you go into school into into June, and that's why you don't get out until that late. But um, yeah, the, I get that. I, I totally get the, the disrespect factor and then saying to yourself, why do I want to sign up for that? Because I'm sure teachers and people in a lot of different professions, journalism included, have had moments where they're maybe five years into their careers and they say to themselves, why am I doing this again? Mm-hmm. Why am I doing this? So you have to absolutely love it. And that's kind of the moral story for, for any passion like that. But that's, that's too bad. Hopefully Tiffany likes her job working for a payroll company. And it's rewarding or at least at the very least it pays well. Payroll company, I would think. Yeah, they gotta uh-huh. listen. The whole the whole role is about rolling in dough. You know, you're rolling the pay. Um, anyway, yeah, no. Shout out to teachers, man. People always talk about yes. like first responders and stuff, and like not that those people are you know overappreciated, but you know, so late- teachers more than first responders. Is that what you're saying? No, about? not at all. I'm saying <laughs> teachers are underappreciated. I think that teachers are a profession that like you know, especially kind of lately. Like my my neighbor that I talk about is super cool. He's a teacher, and when you kind of see what they go through in that. Um, they kind of get used, you know, in kind of like, I hate to say a political sense, but there are so many things that are tested out in schools and so many agendas that get pushed in schools like nowadays, like on, on both sides. And it's just, yes. the, it's, it's, it, the job is getting harder from everybody that I talk to that's a teacher that's, you have to walk this fine line, you know, as far as when it goes to the mass mandates and all the things that they have to deal with on a daily basis. And I think that, um, you know, they're underrespected. I think that, you know, even 10 years ago, like we knew that teachers were under pain and we knew all that stuff, but now it feels like it's an even harder job. So just shout out to all the teachers that are out there like keep it on, keep it on. And I think that was, you know, a smart decision, Tiffany, from your perspective to not do that. And I think it kind of worked out for you. But yeah, just kind of both sides of the aisle, just handshake there. Two years of, of dealing with this has been difficult. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I have lots of teachers in my life. One of my best buddies is a teacher. One of our friends down here in Florida, um, she's a teacher as well. And it's just been all over the place. So you're right, exactly. Shout out to all the teachers who have been dealing with this really, really difficult time to be able to, to educate our youths. 
All right, Matthew Sadro says, wanted to be a professional athlete like most young guys do. I played baseball and basketball mostly and was always one of the better players until high school. Then it hit me like a brick wall that I was just like <laughs> anyone else who played sports as a kid and would have to rely on my brain to make a living. Even though I tried the baseball showcase thing during high school for a few years, I knew the best I could do was playing for a lower tier college team. I quit organized sports entirely before my senior season and happily moved on to pursuing a medical degree. There are people who they'll be like third, fourth year in college, small school, small, small school. And they'll still be telling themselves, I'm going to play major league baseball. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I wonder what, what's, what's this path? How is this path playing out? Maybe baseball is not the best example of that because you can get drafted in baseball and, and like, I don't want to say that it's easier, but obviously having more rounds to be able to do it mm -hmm. and kind of watching my brother go through that process at, at Valparaiso and, and like seeing some of his teammates who by the end of it, they, they just know. And Ryan, his senior year after he got hurt as a junior when he was kind of, he was taking off initially and then senior year, you're kind of like, all right, I'm on, I'm on scholarship. A lot of them baseball aren't on full scholarship, mm -hmm. but I'm on scholarship. I'm kind of riding this thing out. And I got to imagine that there are people who go to a smaller co go to a smaller college, and look up after an athletic career and say, "I wasn't going to the pros." And what if I had realized that four years earlier? Of mm -hmm. course, that's the opposite of the Rudy approach entirely. <laughs> but how many people have that moment of clarity in high school where they just say? It's not happening. It's it's not happening, and that's and that's okay, and that's perfectly okay. Not everybody was put down on this earth like Tracy McGrady. Listening to him on part of my take, where he just talked about throwing 87 miles an hour just mm -hmm. casually after not playing baseball for like 16 years and still being able to do that. You're like, okay, yeah, um, different breed of human you are than me. I fully understand a, that. You are a human trebuchet. You can just create yep. momentum. That is not me, buddy. Yep, not me. Uh, I, I'm not running a 445. I, I don't care how much training I do. I, it's just not gonna happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, having that moment of realization before you're maybe financially invested, credit to you because uh, that's, it's not to say that that time would be wasted because at the same time, there's also a certain element where you're like, play sports as long as you can. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and t as long as somebody is giving you that opportunity, just play sports, play sports and have fun with it. Do it until your body tells you you shouldn't be doing this anymore. But it, it is definitely a, a fine line that you have to walk of when do I want to maybe pursue my degree post-college and kind of figure these things out. And I know that for some people, playing sports is a way to kind of delay all of that when even if they know. So yeah, it is a difficult thing to have to, to like come to grips with, but sounds like Matthew did it at the exact right time for him. Hey, it's better to be coming to grips with it at that age than pulling a gun on people at a flag football event, really, so. Goodness gracious, what, an, <laughs> what a callback to an all-time figuring out response we had. So listen, Goodness. that's the guy who doesn't let it go, and he's like 30, and he's just like, look, there might be some pro scouts out here, I gotta whip out this piece, and then you're that guy. So it's good to, good to figure it out, whatever, it's time to get off the bus. Intramural, intramural sports in college has a lot of that. Yep. Oh man, so many. Where sometimes I remember looking around, whether it was flag football or or softball or something like that, thinking like, I just want to say to some of these guys, did, did the scouts see that? Did they see? <laughs> did they see that run? Are you, are you sure? Do you, want, do you want me to get video and send it to them? Everybody, yeah. hand up. Who thinks sports is too political, and that's why you're here? Everybody. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. Exactly. 
this one from Austin Foster. Uh, he says, at three, I decided I want to be and look like Michael Jordan. I tried to cut my own hair and look like him. Mom caught me in the act and sat me down at three years old and crushed my dreams by telling me that I needed a lot more hair, a lot more than a haircut to look like Mike. Oof. At least she kept it to hair. It didn't talk about your vert. <laughs> didn't talk about your handle. Just said, no, this, this ain't happening. If, if I saw my child at age three cutting, cutting their own hair, that, that'd be a fair response to have. But if they say they want to be like Michael Jordan, you know, see, see if that's at least possible. At three, you can figure some things out, right? Mm -hmm. You can say, we'll get you to the right person to cut your hair. And if you want to be like Mike and, and practice this, no, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> having that realization at three years old, hey man, Way earlier than I ever had it. Way earlier. Not even mm -hmm. close. Who didn't want to be like Mike growing up? But you you kind of just missed that that era a little bit, right? Where that wasn't as much of like a we I want to be like Michael Jordan. Like who was the the stereotypical like I, I would this this basketball player is is the dream to turn into like was it was it Kobe? Was it AI? Like did you have one in mind that you always emulated? Well for us it was Shaq. Uh, same thing. Stop mm. growing. Uh, growing up as kind of a chubby kid who was able to kind of push people around in the post. I was like, this is gonna be great. I'm gonna be seven one. I'm just gonna I was like projected to be like six eight or something, like when I was really Wait, young. What? Yeah. I ate terribly is what happened to me. My whole family's huge. I'm like the run of my family, believe it or not. And so <laughs> Yeah. My whole family is like six five, six six. So I was like Oh, dude, this is great. I can work on like some post moves. I can do all this. And then I stopped growing. And I was like, oh, this is useless. I'm a useless player. I'm 6'1". I'm all I know how to do is post. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> being, being told that you're going to be 6'8", that's like, that's dangerous. Yep. The, the possibilities of what you can do if you know that that is your, your potential as opposed to 5'8", which, you know. Some of us hear that and then they look at the doctor like they're crazy and then they don't really process that people who are shaving in seventh grade probably don't have a whole lot of room to go in terms of growth. Um, being told you're going to be 6'8 is way better. What, what was, were you told in like elementary school that you're going to be 6'8? Yeah. You're, you're what now? Like 6'1? Yeah, I'm like 6'1, borderline 6'2. But yeah, I was told in like fifth grade, like, hey man, take care of yourself and you're going to be really tall. I pretty much did not take care of myself. I think I just ate a bunch of, drank a bunch of Mountain Dew, ate a bunch of chips, and I think it just kind of like, what, or the guy was wrong, I don't know. But yeah, my, like I said, my whole family are massive. So I literally thought I was, when I was young, I literally thought I was going to be Shaq because I was so much bigger than everybody. At the very least, you could have looked down at Michael Jordan. Exactly. <laughs> you know? If only. Mm -hmm. Drew Page says, horror story realized slash realized it wasn't going to happen. Out of college, I got my first job in radio with a broadcast degree. They treated me like garbage from the start. One morning, <laughs> I came in to do the morning show, but they hadn't shown me 100% how to work the board. This is a real thing. Mm -hmm. And those who have been in that spot, if you've done like college radio or something like that, that moment of panic of being like, I don't know how the vast majority of these buttons work and I don't know how to troubleshoot any of this. Yes, that's that's very real. Um, so people were hearing music but wouldn't hear me talk. Nobody called to tell me something was wrong. The next Monday they fired me and said, I embarrassed the station. Eventually wound up in healthcare and I love it. Bonus story just for y'all. One day I hit uh, a key on a wireless board nobody thought was working. It was working. Started playing Jeopardy music while a Justin Moore song was on live. <laughs> That I I one time when I was in college and I did I did college radio for like 
was it just a semester? I think I did it for a semester, like first semester, senior year, or something like that. And I had, or I might have been, might have been two semesters. I had a like a morning radio show that was once a week um, with somebody I, I covered, not not my rival from the last episode, <laughs> but with another guy who covered who covered Indiana sports there. And um, one of the things that we we had to do like two days that we were like during two football games or something like that, we had to work the board essentially. So you can like host a halftime show or something. You could like host a post game show. You basically have to like plug in the songs to play after the game ends or whatever the case. And the guy that I was like working the board with, we were both kind of like, I don't really feel like we had training for this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is, this is going to be bad. And then we thought everything was fine and we thought we did what we were supposed to do. And we both got a call 20 minutes later from like the station director saying, hey, we have dead air. You need to get back <laughs> and put something on. I'm like, okay, so everybody on campus who was listening to the student radio station heard dead air as a result of my negligence. Awesome. This probably isn't the career for me. So similar, Drew. They didn't fire me though. They probably were like, let's stick to your day job. Just continue writing. Don't don't worry about any of that for the future. You don't have to be a three-level scorer in this aspect. You could just do the all-air stuff. Yeah. And like yeah. it seems like the board guys, like you almost have to have like my disposition where it's like, oh, something's on fire, it's like, okay. We'll figure it out because <laughs> yeah. if you're so dialed into that, it gets so bad because there will always be something going wrong, and you're just like, "Okay, cool." Yeah. Now we're listening That's to the last set. That's fine. Yeah, I remember the board guy for our, for our show that we did. He like didn't show up three times. Just didn't show Sweet. up. Sweet. Yeah. Super reliable Love college guy. Jobs. Yeah. And then when we got mad at him for not showing up, he's like, "What do you mean?" I'm like, "Did, did you not sign up to do this?" <laughs> At 7.30 in the morning when we're supposed to be hosting this show and you're just you're just like MIA and we can't get a hold of you. He's like, you texting me didn't make me move faster. <laughs> that is what my least response. favorite text in the... Okay. Anyway, moving ne- on. <laughs> yes. Never respond to that ever. If you're the person that's clearly in the wrong and you're not showing up to something that you have made a commitment to, never ever be that person that pushes back with that response because... That's never gonna end well. Yep. I'm talking about this person 13 years later because of how much they sucked. Mm-hmm. Anyway, all right, let's move on. I'm getting heated too. <laughs> let's go to uh, uh, let's go to this one from Ryan Land. Ryan says, "When I was young, I wanted to be a phone operator. When I grew up, and that job no longer existed, I became a social worker." <laughs> all right, respect. Phone, phone operators is just not a thing anymore. Uh, like, like when you call and you say operator, I would like to speak to somebody on West 33rd Maple Street and they go, okay, blah, 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 like operator. That, that's, that's not a thing. Uh, okay. You well, if you call, that? if you pick up your phone and say operator, does somebody answer? Fair point. No. Okay. Fair point. <laughs> I guess I'm confusing that with customer service type <laughs> jobs. Not like a phone bank. Those are still around. I like the old school, like rotary phone, like operator, give me the hospital. I have an emergency. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That that I can see. But I would see that would be an easy transition if you wanted to work in customer service. Yeah. I don't know. Most, I'll tell you what. Most times in, you call customer service and you ask to speak to a representative and then you're like, by the end of it, g- give me the operator back. Right. Give me the machine. <laughs> They're easier to deal with. Just scream this at this machine and feel better for a second. Know how you yell, um, representative, 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 and then it pushes you through to a representative. You should be able to be talking to a representative who's not helping you whatsoever, and then say, operator, 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 and then they push you back mm-hmm. to the machine who's telling you exactly what to do. They should do that. Correct. Figure that out, somebody. 
Let's go to uh, uh, Bradley Zane Zamanek, uh, pro video gamer, which in my childhood days wasn't even a thing. Well, it is now, so chop, chop, get on it. Get those reps in, man. You could do that. You could be doing that right now as you're listening to this. You so. could. Come on. Never been more popular. Esports, blown up. That's what Darren Ravel tells me. Mm-hmm. Hey, make it happen, man. I don't know what's standing in the way of that. Yeah. Standing in the way of you in childhood, not standing in the way now. Maybe probably probably have like a real job right now in which you couldn't just be like, I'm going to start playing video games professionally. Might have given that up. Okay. Probably more context was needed for that one. That's Sorry a, look, that. that's a family decision. Looks like he has a wedding photo or anything. That's like a, hey, honey, I got to spend 16 hours a week playing Warzone. Veto. <laughs> yes. That's going to be a hard no. Uh, we're, we're, we're not rolling that dice. Not at, not at this stage in life. Mm-hmm. Jared Brown says, sports journalist, no doubt. Played basketball growing up, and that was going to be uh, my way through college. Mizzou never offered, so I was a... So I settled for a smaller school that didn't have the same journalism cachet and majored in finance instead. Now I work in the mortgage industry and live through guys like O'Gara. My efficiency at work would be better if I didn't spend so much time reading sports articles. Thank you for reading. Thank you, Jared, very much. Um, Look, this this sounds really, like really similar to to what my brother went through. it's not that like Valparaiso had journalism, which was good. If they didn't have journalism at all or didn't have like a, a student paper or something like that, which that's becoming more of a thing where student newspapers just are getting wiped out. Yeah, that's that would have. Yeah, it definitely does thing. That would have been a really tough sell. Um, and it's it's so difficult to to kind of put yourself in that spot because you are hedging to a certain extent. Right you are trying to set yourself up for that next level, but they're like the demand in sports journalism is just off the charts. Mm-hmm. And sometimes with some of these jobs, if you aren't set up at the exact right college, it, it can make a big difference. Like I, I am always thankful that going to, and, and that's not to say like only, only like a big school can help you out in, in sports journalism, but I know with a lot of those internships, they, they are very dependent on, hey, if you went to Indiana, if you went to Syracuse, you went to Mizzou, and some of these places that are that just have basically have feeder programs into these internships, and it gives you a leg up. It definitely does. Mm-hmm. Whereas like going to a smaller school, you know, Valparaiso isn't sending you all these emails on a given week saying, we have this at MLB.com, we have this at, you know, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, like we have all these different opportunities. Like they, they still have opportunities. Look at the twist. They absolutely do. But I, I saw firsthand what that was like with, with my brother and like how difficult that could be at times to not necessarily have all those opportunities. And I felt like I, I was like, I, great. I, I benefited from this. And he, he instead was in a position where, yeah, like it was, it was going to be a little bit tougher having the baseball background and not necessarily being able to do that. Because on top of that, if you're playing sports, if you're playing sports at like a smaller school, you're probably doing that over the summer as well. Mm-hmm. Like most programs aren't really allowing you to kind of have that time to to do like and like if I know Ohio State players always talk about these great internships that they're getting and stuff like that. <laughs> but they do. I'm not I'm not denying that they're that they're actually doing these things. I would love to see how intense they are. Mm-hmm. I really would. I would love to see if they're actually grinding like five days a week at you know, whatever, like if they're going to ESPN and and doing stuff like that, or if it's more like, Hey, you know, we, we have a month from May, like basically like May where you get to do this. And then you got to come back to school and complete all these, 
you know, all our summer workout program and, and essentially do that. Mm -hmm. So it's it's tough if you want to continue to play sports to actually continue to like follow that career path, at least in sports journalism. I saw that play out with a lot of different people. Yeah, I'll, I'll say real quick. I remember um, there was a guy named Josh Moore who was like on air in Chicago, really, and he was um, the head of our sports marketing program. I talked to him. I was like, yeah, I want to be a sports journalist. Da, da, da. And he was like, hey, man, he's like, if you want to be a sports journalist, exactly what you just said, like, go quit now at full sale go to Syracuse, you can get in, your grades are good. He's like, but, he's like, I'm gonna tell you this, he's like, you're gonna go through four years in the snow, and you're from Louisiana, and right now you're in Florida. He's like, so B, you need to make that decision to be married to the grind right now, and I was like, yeah, you know what? <laughs> I was like, I'm not married to that grind. That's like when I figured it out, like that that wasn't gonna happen for me. He's like, you could get a marketing video degree and work in and around sports and stay here and like be a lot safer. He's like, but if you do that and you don't get that pipeline that you were talking about, you're gonna be struggling. And I was like, I think I'll take the sunshine actually. All th this this profession, and I know I'm speaking specifically to sports journalism, but I don't know. I, th I think if people are listening to this, they have kind of an interest in this. And yeah. I've, I've told kind of my story, my background in it before, but you hit on something that's really, really important that I'm not sure like a lot of people realize if you take kind of the more traditional path in this field. I had internships with uh, Indianapolis Indians, which is a triple A team for the Pittsburgh Pirates. I did that my summer after junior year of college. And then after my senior year of college, I worked for three months at the Pro Baseball Hall of Fame, like mm -hmm. National Baseball Hall of Fame, like a place where that that's, that's going to stand out on any resume and, and it's going to pop and it was a great experience it was unbelievable i got back after that and for five months even though i had those internships and oh by the way i did like a game day pr internship with the colts mm -hmm. so yeah. i had all those things on my resume i did everything i was supposed to do on student newspaper i worked my way up i got to the top of the sports section i did everything within my power i had like a good enough gpa which i don't even know if that was on my resume post college and it took me like five months to get a job. Mm -hmm. And it was central Nebraska. You're gonna cover high school sports, you're gonna cover USHL hockey, you're gonna cover a little bit of University of Nebraska Kearney Division II sports. We're gonna maybe get get you opportunities to cover Nebraska home football games, even though that wasn't even part of the application process. They didn't even sell me on that. That was kind of one of those things that was decided after I got there. And it was hard, man. And I watched people come into central Nebraska and then do the old Simpsons gif, the Simpsons <laughs> grandpa gif. They put the hat on, they, t they, t they take the hat off, and then they put it back on, and then they're out. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I had probably four different people that I worked with in that job uh, who were fellow sports writers, like in the same exact position as me. I was there for two and a half years, mm -hmm. and I watched people that just got chewed up and spit out, and they said, I can't do this. I can't be driving 50 minutes each way to go cover this, you know, this this random track meet. I can't be doing you know driving an hour each way to cover you know girls tennis or or I can't be sitting outside forty degree weather with thirty five mile an hour winds covering soccer when it's rainy out. It's a grind mm -hmm. and like because of how coveted these jobs are, you have to put up with some crap. Oh you yeah, just do. And they're they're like the prerequisite. I always think for, for having any job in sports journalism should be some capacity of covering high school sports. Mm -hmm. that, that is like the true foundation in which you should build everything you do in this field. And to this day, I am so appreciative that I was able to do that. And I was also freelancing while I was applying for jobs and whatnot, and I was able to live back home. And I had the benefit of having parents who kind of gave me that time to be able to figure out where I wanted to go and ultimately get an opportunity. But it chews you up and spits you out and it, it is hard, man. It's freaking hard. So I take pride in it and I know I'm kind of ranting here, but 
like that's that's why not everybody is able to to do a job like this. I mean, to be 100% honest with you. Oh, dude, I would have been one of those people. If I even made it to Nebraska, I would have been like, it's cold. I don't like this. <laughs> it's cold, man. It's cold. Yeah, you're not working. You're not sitting there like in Chicago, you know, working for, you know, being like, oh, hey, I'm going to go cover the Cubs today. Oh, hey, you know, Blackhawks got media availability tomorrow. I'll go I'll go check that out. It's like, no, you're, you're starting from the bottom, man. Like, right. that's just... That's just the way it works. Uh, Chris Ahor, similar thought. He said, by the time I realized I would never make any money playing sports, I thought the next best thing would be sports journalism. I went to college for this and pretty much got straight A's, did an internship my senior year and thought this would be enough. When I went to apply for jobs upon graduation, I found that somehow I was supposed to have at least two to three years of experience for all entry level jobs yep. I applied for. Yep. Yup. Retweet. 100%. That's it. Nobody wants to hire grads out of college. Mm -hmm. They just don't. Because more times than not, they don't have to. Mm -hmm. That's that's how coveted these positions are. And if you're not doing all the internships, and I, I started internships late. I know people in my field that were starting doing internships after their freshman year. I was like, I gotta make money. I gotta work at sports camp yeah. back in my you know my, my hometown. And I gotta do that for a couple of years so that I have any sort of money to be able to spend at school. And I was like, look, this is... <laughs> Even then, because you do these internships and you do some of them that are unpaid, you know that the the Indian internship was basically gas money. Right. I drove from Bloomington, which was fifty, probably about fifty to fifty-five minutes uh, each way. And I, when they were home, you know, it, it was every day. I wouldn't work road games or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But that's all that money was there to cover. So I, I was, you know, I was in the hole that summer. Right. The next summer, when I was at the Baseball Hall of Fame, like they they had you know, a stipend for us or whatever that we were able to get through this program. But other than that, it was like, hey, what money did you bring with you? Because that's essentially, you're, you're getting money to be able to survive and pay your rent of living in these dorms. And, and that's it. You're driving 40 minutes to work each day. They had us at Oneonta College. And that's just what you do. Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of understood. And it's weird because there are not probably, like a lot of people are listening to this are like, that's just, that, that doesn't sound like a, a fun way to go through. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. But the, the opportunities are great if you can get them. And if you can get out and, and kind of get through some of that stuff early on. I mean, I always say the reward is absolutely there. I'm talking too much about me right now. I'll <laughs> say really, really quick about the entry-level jobs yeah. thing. I'm really thankful to SDS in that aspect because just life advice for everybody. If you, when you get out of college, try to make your first job not at a huge company. Make your job, but first job at like a smaller company that will let you mm. try a bunch of different stuff. Because by the time I was looking for jobs like after SDS, my resume was insane looking because the amount of stuff I was able to do at SDS that they just trusted me with by the time I left. And like when it was me and 50 other people applying for my job, it's like, oh my gosh, you made, you know, GIFs, you made memes, you made videos, yes. you ran social, you did like all this different stuff. Whereas if I had gone to ESPN and been a PA for two or three years and then- You're doing like one thing. Right, That's you're it. doing one thing. And then if you try to leave that place and go to another pipeline, they're like, who are you? You didn't even do anything at ESPN. So that's that's like actually huge like uh, advice because like I got to skip that stage of the whole like entry yeah. level because I started with as an intern at SDS and then moved up to like kind of like running the social division and everything. And then my, my next job was like, oh my gosh, you're too qualified. It's 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 a great point. And, and I think that, that probably applies to a lot of different places as well of like a lot of people think they need to have this destination type job mm -hmm. immediately out of college. And I thought that for a while as well. Of, oh my gosh, if I'm not, you know, at this specific place and then you do the comparison thing of like, if this is your childhood dream, I, I need to, I need to be really 
like at that level mm -hmm. post-college because this is what I went to school for. And you're exactly right though. When I was in Nebraska, they said, hey, we want you to do a lot of different things. You're gonna cover games, you're gonna write about features, you're gonna do a video show for us, you're gonna do blogging for us, you're gonna be editing pages for us, mm -hmm. and that's pretty much gonna be the majority of like your your you know, like your day-to-day -day type stuff. And that's that's just going to be the job. And you're gonna to get to do a lot of things. And I kinda of looked back and was like, Yeah, this is great. This stuff is great you do today, yeah. If I was just sitting there writing like, you know, quick news stories or something like that, yeah, I mean, it would have been helpful, but at the same time, because I was at a smaller place and because I could make some of those mistakes and they put a lot of trust in me, it allowed me to get those opportunities to where by the time I was ready for that next job, I felt very confident that I could do a lot of stuff. So whatever line of work that you're in, I, I think that's a that's a great piece of advice to just say don't don't be so concerned about living out your childhood dream right out of college. Mm -hmm. Like it's okay, it's perfectly okay. You can still be on that track. Figure out and get better because everybody always thinks that they're better at what they're they're doing coming out of college than they actually are. Oh yeah. And sometimes that's a really tough pill to have to swallow. I, I swallow that that pill a lot, mm -hmm. <laughs> definitely. Where I'm like I was covering the Sweet Sixteen, like. Eight, eight months ago. Yep. What, do you, what do you mean I'm, I'm freezing my butt off covering this soccer game that nobody's, that six people are going to read? Like, what, what, what are we talking about here? That's just, that's the nature of the beast. Okay, let's let's end with the, a non-sports writing one. Uh, we've gone long enough. Uh, Tristan Page says, I guess when I was a kid, uh, I wanted to be a NASCAR driver. <laughs> I quickly decided that wasn't for me and found out that I wanted to go into radiology. It turned out to be my dream job when my grand got diagnosed with lung cancer. Uh, horror story, too many to count. Uh, I work in healthcare. The things people say about, the things people say to me aren't PG enough for you to put into the pod, but here goes nothing. One patient uh, choked me while I was trying to do an x-ray. My immediate response when the cop came in the room to help uh, could could have choked me harder. <laughs> well, uh, another patient's family member threatened to find me in the parking lot and shoot me because I accidentally bumped his mom's stretcher into the wall in a crowded and tight hallway in the ER. Whew. What's the proper response to that? Please don't. <laughs> Man, I would not prefer to be choked right now. <laughs> be nice to all healthcare workers, man. Yep. If, if you spend enough time in the hospital, oh, the things that some of these people put up with, and it's, it's always because it's, it's tense situations and people are emotionally drained. And I, I've seen that firsthand of just like, that frustration gets taken out on the healthcare worker when, look, they're, they're doing their best, they're doing, they're doing jobs that I don't think people fully like can comprehend. I definitely don't fully comprehend how how intense that can be. The working night shifts, working doubles, and doing all those different things. Like, be nice to your healthcare workers. Don't, please don't don't say that you're gonna take them out to the parking lot and shoot them. Okay. I can't imagine too in this age, like, because you probably deal with it as a sports writer. Like, you could write an article about this and like, you know. 10, 10 different or like 10 best players and somebody's like oh well what about this guy from Arkansas you didn't think about him he had like here was his EPA like here's all this different stuff it's like all right guy like I, okay you do my job I couldn't imagine that as a health work because like somebody could just google whatever their symptoms are and just be like yeah I'm pretty sure this is polio and you're just like it's definitely not polio and they're just like hey you know what uh, you know I don't really respect the the show Dave starts off with him going it's like such a great line it's like I think there's a great uh, disconnect between the online medical community and the brick and mortar medical community about this specific issue and the doctor goes you mean doctors you mean you the, the, the doctors <laughs> yes 
Yes, uh, but yeah, be, be good to your healthcare workers. Good though that it's a that it's a dream job. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, a lot of people listening to this got to do their dream job exactly what they they set out to do. Whether that was in elementary school, middle school, high school, whatever, and you're able to to live that out each and every day. Uh, we've got a lot of great content coming up on SaturdayDownSouth.com. I, that's just kind of a, a baseless plug, but Generally. whatever, just click something. Yeah, just a very general plug. <laughs> Get over to SaturdayDownSouth.com. A lot of great college baseball content, college softball content that we're going to have in the pipeline, not just college football as well. If you have not, give us a five-star review. Always appreciate those. Subscribe to this podcast. Subscribe to College Football Uncensored, subscribe to everything that we do. Go subscribe to the Saturday Down South YouTube page, join the Facebook group, hear your name read on air in Figuring Out or Bold and Brush. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.